Hello everyone and welcome to the Health Education England's podcast series supporting you to support others on the topic of social isolation and loneliness. This is episode one titled Supporting You where we're going to be exploring what social isolation and loneliness is and how it can affect different people and the impacts it can have on them. My name is Holly Potton, and today I am joined by Dr. Bogdan Shiva-Jerka, the Development Lead for Global Social Prescribing Alliance, Jack Branson, a second-year therapeutic radiography student, and Elle Storey, a final-year occupational therapy student, both of whom are studying at Sheffield Hallam University. Thank you all for being on the podcast today and discussing such an important topic with me. So to start us off, when you hear the term loneliness and social isolation, what does this mean to you? So when I hear those two terms, um, essentially to me, social isolation is something that um, can either be a defence mechanism or a choice, um, whether it's an unconscious means to find comfort from social anxiety um, or an active conscious choice for self-care purposes. Um, you know, those, that's the sort of things that's the sort of things that come to mind when I hear social isolation. When I think of loneliness, um, I believe it's a feeling that can be experienced as a result of an, an inability to emotionally connect with others. That's a great one, Jack. And I, I, I think the interesting part here is uh, whenever I hear the two, I guess it's um, times when I felt socially isolated or I felt lonely. And, and I think what's interesting for me here is the, the distinction that you made between the two. Um, and I think the idea of being alone in time and space, whereas when you feel lonely, is the more of the idea of not being connected with others around you, not belonging to a group um, and not finding meaningful social uh, connections with those around you. Um, so you could be alone and perfectly happy um, and find solitude, which is what we all want from time to time. Um, or you could feel lonely um, when you're surrounded by others. So you might have a, a full uh, house or the flat, your flatmates and family might be around you, but you would still feel um, lonely because you're not able to, uh, there's a discrepancy be, be, between what you feel you'd like to, to get from that and what you're actually um, getting in, in return from them. Yeah, and I think, I think for me, it's, I think my, my perspective has definitely changed a lot, largely because of COVID, but I think for me, it's really a lot about kind of a state of social health for me as well but kind of now that I guess I've been through it a little bit um, I start to think about kind of the impact that that can have in terms of social health on both mental health and, and ultimately potentially physical as well yeah yeah and and I think especially when you are um, you, you both had the opportunity to to um, go to university at a time when I think COVID-19 and the pandemic has made it quite difficult for you to engage with others um, especially because of the online learning so I was curious how you both felt about that um, and, and whether you had moments when you felt connected in a way, artificially connected through the, the online learning, um, but I guess in a way also felt lonely because you didn't have the opportunity to interact and to, to, to socially connect in the, in the real environment, the real life world. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And um, I'll be able to vouch and uh, any other students that might be listening can definitely vouch as well. Um, back in peak covid when everything was online over zoom it was very much uh cameras off and uh nobody really interacting at all um and i think in my first semester in my first year the only time i saw my cohort was either on placement which was still distanced um 
uh, all mandatory training. That was it. None of the teaching was in person, which was really difficult um, to, you know, connect with people. And you can tell, like, the first years, um, when I was a first year, they're now third years. Um, I'm sure I'll be able to explain a little bit why I'm a second year later. Um, but the you can you can still see there's quite a disconnect between some of the students uh, as a result it's, it's like a knock-on effect if you if you get what i mean um yeah the, you can still see the disconnect today um, as a result of the pandemic and the distance learning for, for me it was a bit of a strange one because i i've i've always considered myself to be quite blessed in terms of like social capital like i have a lot of friends a lot of family i know people all over the place and when it comes to sort of technology and stuff, I'm very good with that. So it's very easy for me to be able to reach out to people. So I didn't expect that COVID would be a bit of a, like an issue for me because I, I'm used to reaching out to people in all kinds of ways. But I, actually during COVID, I got to a point where I couldn't stop feeling like I was isolated. It didn't matter who I reached out to. It didn't matter that I could, you know, call my parents on, you know, uh, Zoom or, you know, Facebook or, you know, whatever. It got to a point where just absolutely nothing helped. And I think part of that was kind of like, I guess, like um, sort of social media, I think, fatigue for me because I spent so much time in one space, you know, like I was I was eating in, you know, this one space. I was sleeping in that space. I was socializing in that space. I was a student in that space. I studied in that space. I worked out in that space and I worked, you know, so sort of professionally in that space and I couldn't really escape that. So, yeah, for me, it was one of them where I just I constantly felt isolated. And it didn't matter who I sort of contacted and how. Um, and I think it, a lot of that came down to really sort of like social cohesion, I guess, in a way. And like the connections were there. It's just for whatever reason, I couldn't get what I needed. That's really interesting, Al. Um, the fact that you've mentioned social media. So I was going to ask, what impact do you guys think social media has on feeling socially isolated and lonely? I've, I've got a tremendous amount of beef with social media, to be completely honest with you. Um, it's It's quite ironic really that in a world never more connected i can't remember who said this to me but someone said this to me when i was younger um in a world never more connected we as a species have never been so lonely um and social media in this sort of context is it's an excellent magnifier um of what we don't have um it's quite paradoxical that uh platforms designed to um make us connect with one another just put into a digestible perspective exactly what we don't have um you'll see pictures of people who are with all their friends having a party on a boat in ibiza and you do you double tap to to like the post and you don't quite you don't quite comprehend consciously um the the slow sort of eroding effect that it's having on your mind um and it just you know it's that's why I consider it a mental amplifier um, because if you if you're feeling anxious, you look at a post. Maybe it's about anxiety, maybe it's the opposite, but you pay extra close attention to it because that's what you're feeling. And the same goes for loneliness. The same go, would go for happiness, even uh, which I suppose would be a positive. But yeah, that's I've, I've got tremendous amounts of beef with social media, like I said. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, Jack. I think it's uh, it's very interesting. We we can focus on the positive of social media too in a second, but I think I agree. It's the the image that we've built of a perfect life, perfect car, perfect body, uh, which doesn't exist. And behind the scenes, uh, it, it's completely untrue. It really contributes to the I guess feeling of loneliness and, and social isolation. If uh, I guess a person like like ourselves, for example, you you're, you're not measuring up to the curated or idealized image of others lives um that that they see online um and i guess excessive social media 
can can also lead to um, a lot of uh, decrease in face to face interactions and a lack of true meaningful relationships with your with your friends, um, which can contribute and further ex- exacerbate those feelings of of loneliness. Um, on the positive side, though, there are real examples of great use of social media. Um, so I'm a big advocate for thinking that uh, you could use it um, uh, properly. But I agree, um, uh, more often than not, it's it's less positive because of the idealized world that we've created, especially for children, young people, teenagers, um, especially for the young people who are the, are the receiving end at the moment. Yeah, I think my biggest issue with social media, especially during the worst of COVID, is just that there was no escape from it. You could not get onto social media without being bombarded with headlines about COVID. And, and you know, uh, you know, human beings are wonderful, but we can be negative. And sometimes, like, when you're already in that negative mindset, the last thing you need is to be on social media and then just be absorbing all this negativity around sort of COVID and what's going on. And I know, uh, you know, I spoke to a lot of friends about it and they would just say, like, oh, you know, I haven't looked at social media. Like I'm, I'm actively avoiding it because I'm surrounded by COVID. Like the last thing I need is to be, you know, on social media and just reading about it and hearing about it and talking about it like all the time. And, and so Holly, I guess just also take a bit of a detour back to your first question. It's so interesting because I think social isolation, it's very easy to define. And I think it's easy for us to understand what it means to be alone in time and space. But I think just hearing Jack L and also myself and my own feelings of, of loneliness from the past, I think it becomes very clear that loneliness means different things to different people. And so I think it's 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 certainly a subjective, uh, it's, a, it's a subjective emotion, it's subjective in nature, and um, certainly arises from that, I guess, discrepancy between what you desire and what you achieve in terms of your social um, connection and social relationships. Um, in terms of quality and quantity. So both of these can can have an impact. Um, but the difference is very clear between them. And sadly, the difference between being alone and feeling lonely is not being understood or portrayed um, in, for the general public to, to understand. And I think people um, do confuse the two quite often. Absolutely. I completely agree. And when you mentioned that how social isolation can manifest differently in different people. So could you kind of give us an example of the kind of typical groups of people that you might expect to associate with being lonely and or socially isolated? Yeah. So if, I'll, I'll, let, um, I'll let Jack and, and Elle to, to fill in for this one as well in a second. But for, for me, I, I guess clinically, um, it's very interesting because I would split these two groups into two. And so I would I would say, the, the social um, isolation side, I would say the elderly as a group are more, more likely um, to have issues with social isolation purely because um, of the nature in which um, we go through life. We, we often lose friends, lose relatives, or we end up in a place that we, we haven't planned to be in, in the first place. And so you, you will see um, lots of social admissions in hospital um, due to social isolation. Um, however, when you look at loneliness, it's very interesting because it's the complete opposite. I would say children, young people, teenagers, students are, are at a higher risk of feeling lonely. That isn't to say that the elderly aren't uh, at risk of that too, because we know loneliness goes hand in hand with social isolation and one leads to the other. Uh, but more so, I would say for this particular group, where that discrepancy between what their ideal social connection would look like and their achieved levels um, is, 
And studies show also that the, that fifty percent of um, people living with disabilities um, feel lonely at a given at a given time on a given day. So it's shocking to think that one in two people living with a disability would feel lonely um, on a, on a given day. So those those groups for me are are, are coming to mind. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that one hundred percent. For me as well, I feel like so when it comes to social isolation. It, no, no, not to sort of oversimplify it, but to me, it kind of, it makes me think about sort of like, you know, the, the inability for, for various reasons to interact with people. Whereas for me being lonely, like in my own experience of it has been, it's not, not necessarily had anything to do with my inability to interact with people. It's been more about my ability to relate to the people that I'm around. And a lot of that comes back to sort of identity. Yeah. Um, and just on how it manifests in different people, just some examples that I've seen in in, in my life, um, uh, when uh, somebody is uh, socially isolated, uh, it can, um, I've, I've seen it make people almost lose, not lose touch with reality, but as close to that as you can, as you can get. Um, and you will have people completely withdrawing from social interaction, potentially, or maybe people throw themselves into social interaction and overcompensate for the fact that they are feeling that way and they are socially isolated they can be over familiar something like that and then i've seen people who've also been aggressive in the past because of it um and it's you know it's it's all about perception i guess and how that person reacts to their uh, to what's going on inside their mind but those are just some of the examples that i've seen in my in my short 21 years experience it's it's very interesting, Jack, isn't it? The overcompensation, like you mentioned, I, I think that's something that um, how many times have you gone to a party, to a family dinner or to a place surrounded by many people but had felt empty or, or un, un, unfulfilled because you didn't feel like you could connect or belong to that group? So a big part for me is that idea of belonging. Um which I think you both alluded to this with social media. I think, sadly, the modernizing of the world, the urbanization, everything else that's happened recently, evolutionary, we've lost the idea of living in tribes and knowing our neighbor. We've lost that idea of knocking on the person next to you and their door and making a meaningful connection. Now you're being seen as strange if you if you do that even. Um, and so I guess I'm sure you don't need a, a, a clinician to tell you kind of like the, how, how we portray some people, but the, the things that we see in hospital all the time, and you, you'll know this from your placements as well, is it's very interesting. It's completely different. Um, people come in with fatigue, insomnia, lack of energy, um, sadness, anxiety, hopefulness. It, it drives a lot of physical and mental symptoms so it's very interesting because it expands beyond the biomedical um, realm um, into the, the the psychological and uh, similarly it goes beyond the, the the mental and psychological symptoms and crosses the border with the within the biomedical and, um, and symptoms and signs that we see in hospital as well why do you think that loneliness and socialization is a problem so what are the long-term effects and possibly any other risks that can occur when you're feeling like this Research-based findings are, are shocking, actually. And, and what surprises me is that we don't have these on big billboards like we have smoking, for example. So one of the, the clear studies that was published is that if you smoke, you know, the, being lonely is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Um, you have smoking and cigarette packs um, on billboards, but you don't have loneliness on billboards. And so 
the awareness about loneliness and social isolation is is not made um, clear. Um, the other the other clear research papers also indicate um, that your risk of of death is twenty six percent higher than than someone who's not feeling lonely. Um, it's worse than obesity, quantified um, by research um, studies. Uh, being lonely is worse than obesity. It's it's kind of like a chicken and an egg because most likely if you're um, socially isolated, you, you're also most likely to be a living sedentary lifestyle as well. Um, it also increases your, your blood pressure, depression and, and um, early mortality rates. And um, you have a higher risk of depression, severe depression in later later life, as well as an increased risk of dementia. Um, so that is all I can tell you from research studies. Um, and, and the evidence is quite clear. Well, um, I suppose ref- kind of referring back to um, what Dr. Bogdan said before as well, with the um, the, the whole modernization of society, I, I think that social isolation and loneliness is a problem because um it's not it's not who we are as it's not what we are as a species you know with uh, with social social creatures it's kind of why we're the, the top species on the planet essentially because of our ability to in- interact and communicate um so it's almost it's almost like a bit of a a torment um between the i suppose it'd be the id and the the ego um where you've got your um evolutionary self telling you you know we are you are a social being you're supposed to be social this is this is what this is what you are but then you've got society which is portraying this uh, like with social media and and such like um that there isn't that awareness to to know what really is going on inside your head and you can't I guess you can't face that torment because you don't have or you haven't been educated adequately, essentially. Yeah, for me, it's, um, you know, obviously, you know, these things are like needs and like, like any need, you know, if if you don't have a way of meeting them, you know, they, they, they just grow and then they get worse and then it becomes another problem. And all of a sudden, it's not necessarily about the fact that you're lonely anymore. It's about the fact that you're depressed. You know, or it's it's about the fact that all of a sudden, you, you've as you say, you know, you're sedentary. You know, sixteen hours a day, or it's about the fact that all of a sudden you've got no routine anymore. You know, you're not doing things, and all of a sudden that lack of routine means that now there's no self care. You know, now you're not eating properly, and at some point things just keep getting worse. And uh, and I think for the people that are particularly high risk as well, so you know, when it comes to like the elderly as well, obviously for the elderly. You know that they're perhaps isolated because there is nobody else, and the problem I find with that is how do we know about these people? How how do you how do you reach out to people and help people when they are essentially isolated? You know, like we, we don't necessarily know that they exist. You know, it takes for something else to happen, right? Like for a hospital admission for them to get to a point where then they become known. And from there, they can get the help that they need. But it's for me, yeah, it's very much about sort of what that can lead on to. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a hidden problem. It's uh, it's masked by other things. The entry point of someone who's lonely or socially isolated is often a medical issue that they've had for a long time that's just been exacerbated recently. And if you're well educated, and and it's I mean, it's amazing that you're both. Um, you know, uh, L, you're just about to, to graduate now, and then Jack, you've got a bit more to go. But it's it's kind of uh, giving us hope for the future generation, really, that we're talking about this, and also to realize that 
these problems are being mapped out in your training and that uh, people are, need to learn about these things because if you're a good clinician and a good health professional, whether you're a midwife or a nurse or a pharmacist or a GP, um, you can spot those um, those signs uh, and then be able to to give a hand. I will never forget this patient um, that I met in uh, in medical school. I was probably at the stage that you are at um, now, Jack, uh, in my second year, and um, it was fascinating because this lady was on um, eleven different medications, and she would come to the GP practice to see the GP every single. Um, week. Um, her name, I won't um, uh, uh, disclose, but I'll just call her Mrs. Smith just for the sake of the, the story. But uh, it's very interesting because when I asked the GP what happened to her, the GP showed me the screen and it was filled with medications. She was on painkillers. She was on antiemetics to prevent her from, um, from vomiting. She um, was having a combination of um, uh, paracetamol, ibuprofen, tramadol, codeine, up to morphine. So a cocktail of, of, of um, uh, painkillers. And um, what she was coming in every single week with was a headache. And the doctors were prescribing again and again and again. And they were asking her to come back next week. And when I asked what was the problem and what was the diagnosis as a student, um, they told me, uh, well, it's quite clear there's much more happening in, their, in her life, isn't it? And I said, that's great. What, what's that? And then the GP smiled and said, well, sadly, um, it's a fake smile because we haven't had time to do that because we only have 10 minutes per patient. And so what they would do is they would reach out to the prescription pad and tell this patient that they'll see her again next week, um, pile on another medication because they couldn't um, get to the root cause of what was happening with her. Um, and in the end, we, we decided to spend, uh, it was myself and a medical student, decided to spend another hour with her because we had plenty of time. And we found out she was a widow. Her husband passed away a year ago. She had no friends, no relatives. Um, she had no one that she would go out of the house with. Um, she even smiled at us and said, to be honest, young man, I'm quite happy to come here every single week. It makes me feel looked after. It's the only social interaction I get out of my day. Um, so for me, at that stage in training was a, a huge eye-opening moment um, to realize that um, th there are individuals out there who you wouldn't be able to tell because you're constantly running as a clinician to sort out what you think is a biomedical problem, um, but is actually masking a psychological and social um, issue um, that could be dealt with through, through support in the local community and at home. Um, so we, we have the tendency to over-medicalize. That's really interesting as well, because I used to work in a GP surgery and we had a very similar patient who used to come in nearly every other day. And it was more because she said, oh, I was just popping by just to say hello and things like that. And then you find out that she's uh, also been widowed and didn't have any family. And so coming to the doctor was the only person that she would see. So she would often come in and do things like that. So we then signposted her to a community coffee catch up and things like that. And then she did her visits started to become less frequent, which was was good for her but um you're right it is it is something that you just don't see until you can have that time to dig deeper and find out more so coming off of the back of that what more would you like to be seen being done to support those experiencing loneliness and how can you give them that time or is there is there a way that you can give them that time for me just uh, very quickly it would be about more education for tomorrow's health professionals. Um, so if we are to see a change, you, you also need to see it in the uh, in tomorrow's health professionals and their educational training. So these issues need to be spotlighted in there. We need to shift um, 
over-medicalizing and the experts from the hospital to support at home and in the local community. Uh, we've developed a model in which we are telling people what to do when actually there's several solutions in the local community um, surrounding them. And that's that used to be the case in the past, but we've over-medicalized and, and um, um, created a, a system whereby it becomes a bit of a repair shop or a fixed shop model that the, the, the healthcare system has become. Um, and just more awareness, like like we were talking about smoking and um, seeing loneliness on a billboard. It's a it's a global crisis. It's a it's a it's an epidemic of loneliness. Um, yet we we haven't um, uh, uh, pulled the, the alarm signal so far. Uh, and I think there's there's a lot more that we can do in terms of awareness. Um, and I'll pass on to L. Yeah, uh, awareness was the first word that definitely came to mind. Uh, for me as well, um, not just for myself and for you know for students, but for for everybody really. Uh, you know we've we've had conversations with students with the university, obviously a lot around this because of COVID, and there's been sort of like a, a shared concern that we don't feel as students that we are prepared to essentially, you know, go out there and and interact with people in you know in in their own homes and and, and things like that. When there are so many more people feeling this way because of COVID. Um, and it's one of those where it's sort of like, how do we, how do we address that? You know? So it's, I think it is a lot around sort of awareness and having those conversations around it as well, but also sort of training as well in sort of like how to actually sort of like, you know, deal with these kind of situations as professionals. Cause I, I personally don't feel like there's, there's been a lot of sort of training around that. Yeah. I think, um, education on the subject for, uh, up and coming healthcare professionals is definitely very important um, because I see it as an increase in competence um, can increase someone's confidence to ask those difficult questions about what's going on at home and uh, you know who do you stay with at home um, and then education on the sort of services um, hopefully if any um, to be able to you know socially prescribe those to that person and tell them um, there's there's this service you can look it up on the internet and it's like a focus group for people who are feeling lonely for example um uh, i think the education around that fundamentally it's certainly a start anyway i think that's where it needs to start yeah fully agree jack um fully agree especially with the idea of social prescribing which is finally an evidence-based tool that you can use to support people in the local community and and at home and again it's not the doctor's job i think we've again gone to say that the you know it's not the experts it should be in everyone's shared leadership um be it a you know if we could reach a, a time and place in the future where the taxi drivers the police uh, members the firefighters the hairdressers could be trained as volunteers to spot the the signs of these uh, of loneliness and social isolation then they, they would be more than um capable to to refer someone to to support from social prescribing in the community absolutely um and uh, just a little bit about um, my intended profession and where that kind of fits into it all. Uh, my course is actually very good at um, talking about social prescribing and, and asking those difficult questions. Um, and it's it's kind of, it's, it's trained me to have an ear for minor details that the, um, the more older, perhaps more stoic um, members of public uh, might mention um such as uh, I'll, I'll give you an example so not 
many people know about the profession of radiotherapy. Uh, we, we're kind of locked away in a basement somewhere, and um, but it, but it is a, a huge part of the the NHS and just most people's cancer cancer journey, cancer treatment journey. Um, and they essentially patients come for treatment with us every single day of the working week, some even on Saturdays, um, and we get to see them every single day. And they may mention something which, if not picked up on, they may think. Um, or like they may not actively think it but they may subconsciously think oh I won't mention that again or something like that um, like I, I can think of one example where just as like a passing comment some of the radiographers will say towards the end of someone's treatment um, they'll be like oh you're near the end now um, I bet you'll be glad to get away from us or something like that and uh, uh, a patient will say oh I'm not sure about that there's not really anyone at home for me to you know and that would be a good a good opportunity to identify that and signpost them to a, a, a you know a correct service yeah and just to sort of add to that a bit as well obviously occupational therapy is a profession that is uh i think a little bit confusing to a lot of people um and it's sort of one of them where you know we have had quite a bit of sort of training and you know education and discussions around social prescribing because it's a big part of what we do just because essentially it's an aspect of signposting which is also a big thing that we do i feel like is you know from my perspective at least as an occupational therapy student because you know we can be seen as sort of having you know our fingers in many many pies um you know like there's a lot of things that we can do and i find that there's obviously like a lot of discussions around that so yeah from that perspective you know social prescribing is, is definitely something that we uh, we talk about quite a great deal yeah yeah and, and i guess so the uh, you mentioned there signposting and i, I think it's uh, it's very interesting isn't it because quite often there's a question of how do you reach the people who need your help the most? Um, how do you ensure that those who are most lonely or part of the, the struggling communities or part of the, the groups that would be hard to reach uh, quite often? And we know that quite often um, they are the individuals that we'll see again and again in, in, in clinics and again and again in the health system as well. So I think there's there's something to say about going a bit beyond signposting in some of those individuals. And I would say for individuals like you and I who've been very fortunate to go to university, have had um, a good education growing up, I think signposting might be good enough for us to choose a service and for us to go there. Um, and we may have the willpower to do so. But I'm thinking about the, the, the Uber driver who would have three children at home uh, or who, who would experience these symptoms, but would have a priority of other needs to, to get through first. I think in, in that case, something like social prescribing where you have a link worker, so a designated person within the community to support them and build that trust over time, understand what exactly is it that matters to them um, and not guess like we do in clinics, frankly, with 10 minutes left of the consultation. And so they wouldn't guess what, what's best for them. They would ask them what truly matters to them and only then be able to even handhold and go with them and uh, with some of them to those activities and support them um, through, throughout the process. I think that's where, for me, that's where the, the, the special, the, the magic happens in social prescribing. Um, I guess signposting is, is great too, um, but it's often often providing support for those who sometimes have it all in a way. And so we need to make sure we also support those who are affected by inequalities in general. Absolutely. And Jack and Elle, as students who have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I didn't know whether or not you knew, but 
because of the pandemic, 26% of students reported feeling lonely often or always, which was compared with the 8% of the adult population. So I just wondered whether or not you felt comfortable sharing an experience of when you've been feeling lonely or socially isolated during your training um, and what, what made that experience either better or worse? Yeah, I, I mean, I can go first. Um, so uh, I, when I started, it was kind of peak COVID in September 2020. Um, and I'm in my uh, second year of study. And those listening who are good with their maths will uh, will realise that that doesn't quite add up. Um, so I moved into a flat where there was three other, three other students, all on health healthcare courses. Um, and they were very different to me, um, you know, I like to I like to spend a lot of time in my room either working out, uh, gaming, or just watching TV, reading, uh, learning a new language, something like that. Um, my flatmates were, you know, very much the opposite. They like to be out and social and stuff like that. Um, we'd sat down at the start of the year and acknowledged uh, that we're all strangers. We all operate differently as individuals, um, and that there would be no judgment. Um, which, of course, I'm telling this story on this podcast, so you know that that's not what happened. Um, uh, so to begin with, I tried to relate to them and kind of fit in, um, if you will, but it just it just wasn't me. So I did end up withdrawing um, and it, like withdrawing back to my to my cave essentially, um, and uh, I'd, I'd heard things that were being said behind my back, like oh. Um, he's a little bit weird. He doesn't come out of his room that much. When he does, he's just in the kitchen doing his dinner and then he goes back in. He doesn't eat in here, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, it, it eventually led to me uh, being socially isolated and feeling very lonely, um, which subsequently led on further to me feeling very depressed and falling, uh, falling behind in my studies um, and getting some pretty abysmal marks on my assignments in my first year. Uh, and it's it's... We mentioned a little bit about it earlier, um, but it was it was strange for me, and it was a bit of a mental torment because my family, are the best family that anybody could ever wish for, and they were just on the other side of the phone. Uh, my mom, in particular, just just on the other side of the phone, um, but I felt so lonely, and it was making me feel very depressed, um, and it had a knock on effect, and it. You know, I, I felt a little bit better towards the end of my first year, but then in my second year, um, I was just like, I don't want, really want to be here anymore, essentially. Um, so I fell behind and I essentially deferred for six months, um, you know, worked another job. I thought, this isn't for me. Um, and I went back to uh, university, uh, the September just gone, September 22, um, and joined the first year 2021 cohort as a second year, which is why I'm now second year. Um, and when I came back, I, you know, I, I had to push myself out of my comfort zone. Um, I started talking on placement. Um, there was a few other changes that I made in my life. I started talking, started talking to people on the cohort, which I didn't have the ability to do really in my first year because of COVID. Um, and, and yeah, uh, I've, I've made friends and if they, if they listen to this, they know who they are. They've made it very like a lot easier for me this year um it's it's been it's been really nice and I, my family and the clinical staff and the academic staff can all see the change and some of them have said it's pretty shocking like how how stark of a contrast it is so um but yeah that was kind of my experience throughout the throughout the pandemic 
Thank you so much, Jack, for sharing that with us. Uh, honestly, it's, it's it's lovely to hear how much you've come on since what you were experiencing and, and that you're feeling in such a better headspace at the moment. So that's that's fantastic to hear. Elle, do you have a story that you'd feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, um, to be honest, for the first year and a half, it would have been harder to remember a time when I didn't feel like I was completely isolated because that's it that's how it was for a year and a half. I just, I, I felt that way all the time. Um, and it became a bit of a, a bit of a catch 22 for me because, you know, fortunately I, I was, I was lucky in that I was actually doing very well academically. Like my grades were all very, very high, but the way I was going about it was so unhealthy, but it became one of them things where I was, I was scared to make changes because I thought if I start making changes, like it's almost one of that, sort of that, that mentality of like, if it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it kind of things, you know, because to me, I was so focused on sort of like just getting through university and doing well, that that's what became important. And so I just kind of kept going with everything that was really, really unhealthy for me, which obviously wasn't, you know, sustainable. Um, but it was really, really difficult again, because like, you know, again, it was a lot about the environment for me, just being in that same space all of the time. And, and I'm, I'm very much sort of like an extrovert anyway. I, I do better when I'm around people. Um, so not being around people is really, really hard anyway, but it also became sort of like a problem for me where, you know, obviously as occupational therapy students, we look at, we look at roles and stuff a lot, you know, we, we talk about sort of occupational balance and I just couldn't find that. And I try and I find myself sort of like overcompensating and trying to force myself to do things that I enjoyed because that's part of what I'm taught, you know, to keep that balance between, you know, work, you know, leisure and, and self-care and all of that. But it actually, it ruined a lot of things for me. Like I spent a lot of time doing things sort of like, like painting, for example, which is something that I used to absolutely love doing. I used to, you know, I used to kind of paint for commissions and things like that. And it's something that since COVID, I've, I've despised it. You know, it's changed a lot about, you know, the, the things that I, I, I enjoy doing because I'd forced myself to do things, you know, to try and feel better and it just wasn't working. And it, it, it became poisonous to me in a way. Thank you, Elle, for sharing that as well. Um, I didn't know whether or not, Bogdan, you had anything to jump in on on that. Yeah, just wanted to thank you both for being so honest and for sharing that. Um, I think it will bring comfort to a lot of people knowing they're in the same boat. Um, I think I think nobody will deny feeling like that at some point in their lives. I could tell you 10 or 20 times when I've had to go through a very similar uh, situation. And so what you both said there is a clear link once again how, you know, feelings of loneliness can isolation as well um, so the idea of um you know you 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 started you, for example jack you mentioned started um with a, a a full flat of flatmates right um who who you didn't relate to at all uh, which then pushed you to be a, a bit more um isolated within your your own room because you could have connected essentially with them and so it's very interesting um that that relationship there what i did also notice which is also what happened to me as well is there came a time, and I think that's something that I think we all need to do um, at some point, is making peace with ourselves, because it's a subjective um, feeling, and I've, I've found myself in this many, many times. You tend to be upset with yourself. You tend to be angry at yourself for not being able to pick yourself up, which isn't lack of bravery or courage. You just can't. Uh, it, it's not possible. And so I think we just need to be very honest about 
the idea of making peace with yourself, acknowledging where you're at um, and practicing a bit more self-care. Nobody's saying you're okay how you are. That's not, it's, that's, I, 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 I kind of like quite like differentiating between the two. It's more about acknowledging where you're at and realizing that there's, there's one step at a time and, and taking it one step at a time and just making peace with your with yourself um, and accepting ourselves, I guess, through the process, which is very difficult. Uh, it's easier said than done, but I think it's part of the process. Absolutely. Um, and so for the final question of the episode, does anybody have any tips or guidance for helping to manage your mental health when you're going through something like this? Yeah, um, just to sort of go off something that, you know, uh, you've just said, uh, you know, Bogdan, it's, um, it's about just, just if you can, just speak to somebody, anybody, because chances are you're not alone in how, you, how you're feeling, no matter how bad that might be and how sort of constant that can be, you know, that there is, there is somebody, you know, there's, there's always somebody that feels exactly the same that you did and that's actually uh one of the things that really helped me in the end you know i was fortunately blessed in that my cohort is 80 something people we all have that shared experience of studying for the better part of two years you know in our rooms um and as you know i spent some time as a you know as a as a course uh, representative so you know it was kind of on me in a way to reach out to people and the amount of times i would just have somebody come back to me and say honestly just you asking how I'm feeling has made all the difference in the world and just knowing that there's somebody else that feels exactly the same way it just helps without you really even having to do anything yeah I and and just to to carry on from there uh, as well I'll just to say that I'm I'm international so I'm not going to be very British about this but uh, we need to get over the Britishness of how are you I think if you really ask that question to someone, just mean it wholeheartedly, uh, because when somebody says fine, uh, you will all know uh, what that means. <laughs> it's uh, it's an acronym for something else. Um, and so I, I think it's very important to ask that question to others and to um, to 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 show others that, you know, what they're going through is, is completely normal and part of the, the human existence. Um, for me, a big part is is um, the idea of taking note and doing a bit of an audit. I'm not sure if I'm being too sciencey about this, but taking an audit of your life and understanding or trying to think, how did this happen? How did I get here and why? I think looking at the past can really help because chances are there are some things that you may have not made peace with. Um, and similarly, just acknowledging so that you can live in the present um, and, and make peace with who you are as a person in the, in the present moment um, and reaching out to, to others whoever they may be. I, I recognize we're all quite young in here, so it's it's probably advice for the younger generation, really. Um, but I, I do hope, um, you know, I do hope we can also generalize a bit to um, to provide some some tips for, um, for all the listeners to say that I would say practicing that self-care, seeing where you're at and, and really, even if it's less interaction than usual, making that interaction meaningful um, and, and choosing your, finding your tribe of people who would get you and and people who would resonate with your values and that would um, limit the mismatch between your expectations and and the the, the reality uh, of the situation as well yeah um i think i'd just say um it's it's great to feel comfortable it's great to feel comfortable but you can be unhealthy like you can be comfortable in an unhealthy way 
Um, so like El had mentioned when he uh, recounted his experience during the pandemic, he was doing well in university, but um, perhaps wasn't living the most healthy life that he, he could be. Um, but that's how he was comfortable at the time. And just I think what people need to understand is that just because you feel comfortable, um, we're, we're creatures of habit um, and we find comfort in our habits. So you do have to push yourself out of your comfort zone to sometimes um, take action on how you're feeling. Um, it's It can be very difficult, but as soon as you take that first step, it, it then does become just infinitely more easy uh, to carry on once you once you get a taste of what it what it feels like to uh, you know push yourself out of your comfort zone you may find that you feel like you want to do it again and go further with it and it's it can become a chain effect it's all about it's all about your perception um of the world i believe um but yeah just the final bit, Holly, um, uh, for the listeners, I guess, for anyone who wanted to find more resources, specifically the, the statistics that I mentioned, the, um, the research papers, if anyone was quite keen to look at the, the, the studies and the research, but also to find uh, a bit more generally about loneliness and the difference between loneliness, social isolation, um, the campaign to end loneliness, um, uh, which I'm, I'm sure many of you have um, heard of, has a great website with the basics and the research. So I would um, wholeheartedly recommend um, listeners to have a look for further resources there as well um, and of course we also have a lot of evidence on the national academy of social prescribing website um, and further guidance in terms of social prescribing and tools as well fantastic thank you all so much so that does bring us to the end of this episode thank you so much to jack l and bogdan for speaking with us today on such an important topic This is the first episode in our mini-series. If you've enjoyed this episode, check out our second episode, Supporting Others. If you'd like to learn more about the topic of loneliness and social isolation, there is further training materials available on our website. I hope this episode has been beneficial to you as a listener, and thank you for listening to Health Education England's podcast series, Supporting You to Support Others.